Hello and welcome to the Historical Humans Podcast. My name is Justin Woods and I am joined by my co-hosts. Gwendolyn. And Caleb. And together, we are the three heads of Cerberus. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Now, um, do you guys want to go into your background and talk about why we're here and why we're talking about this? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, So uh, my background is in cultural anthropology. Uh, I have my uh, BS in uh, cultural linguistics, uh, focusing on Japan and mythologies, and I'm currently working on my master's with that concentration as well. Uh, I am an archaeologist with degrees in anthropology and classical civilizations, uh, currently working on a master's in historical archaeology. Uh, My focus is colonialism, which is always fun. It's not. (laughs) And um, I am also an archaeologist. However, I specialize in community-based collaborative archaeology, working with indigenous communities. And I am already done with my master's and my grad work. So I am no longer working on it. (laughs) (laughs) So lucky. Yeah, you know, (laughs) writing a thesis, good fun, but. Just just rub that in just a little bit further. (laughs) I I mean, yeah, it's it's all good, but background in archaeology. So you got two archaeologists and a cultural anthropologist here, and we're going to just, we're not going to focus specifically on anthropology or on archaeology. We're going to have more of a broad range of of topics and, you know, what better way to start this off than with our Christmas special. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course, not like we're jumping the gun or anything. Yeah, no, no, this is a Christmas special. So, Colm, you want to lead us off, set the scene, Uh, build the world? All right, all right, all right. So, uh, this year's uh, Christmas special and uh, our flagship topic for uh, for this operation is the Christmas truce of 1914. Now, night, <coughs> excuse me. <laughs> now, Christmas truce of 1914 occurred during the first year of World War One, which uh, the most more astute of you may have guessed was 1914. Uh, at this point in the war, uh, the war had been raging for only five months or so at this point. And the death toll was far lower and had seen far fewer of the truly hideous uh, human rights abuses uh, that would occur from the advent of trench warfare on this scale. The Christmas truce uh, was an extension of two major factors. Uh, First was a call by the uh, newly elected Pope of the Catholic Church, uh, Pope, mm, what was his name? I do always forget, just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pope Benedict the Fifteenth, yes. Uh, but uh, it, this was a combination of his call, which was ignored by uh, the governments of the nations fighting in World War One, and another factor which had taken place in the trenches uh, around Belgium which was a live and let live policy, wherein various soldiers from opposite sides of the lines would 
quietly ignore the others when in uh, men from the other side when they encounter them on scouting missions or attempts to retrieve uh, fallen comrades and things like that, simply on the grounds that there was enough death in the war and two more people shooting each other in the middle of no man's land wasn't really going to help anybody. Pretty respectable. Uh, yeah, the the fact that they just would not even bother each other is kind of cool. Yeah, I like uh, the scouts just like acknowledge that they're scouts and you know kind of pass each other by. They're trying to get a job done. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was very, uh, it was very lovely. It, it pissed, it pissed the uh, uh, commanders off to no end. Uh, there were several very strongly worded letters uh, written by various commanders along the front about uh, people letting their guard down and fraternizing and not seeing uh, the enemy as the enemy, but as people, which, uh, you know, generally is a good thing as a human being, but evidently not so in war. I mean, also, when you when you stop and think about it, this point in European history is one of the first times in almost its entire history that there were definitive borders. I mean the German Empire was only established for, what, less than 100 years by that point? I don't think so. Because the, the German uh, states yeah. didn't unite till what, the 1860s? Yes, uh, yeah, Germany as we know it came out of the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire following the invasions of Napoleon in the uh, first half of the eight, of the uh, 19th century. So, with, with within us, this was a uh, this was a nation barely a century old. Yeah, so I, I wonder how much of that really plays into it, especially with just how interconnected it always is, with it being the Holy Roman Empire, with there being the Napoleonic Empires. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. It was uh, definitely acts of nation building. And honestly, a lot of the... Uh, that, that brings a very good point about borders. A lot of the German troops in the trenches spoke english they spoke good english uh there are accounts of many of them having been living in england uh prior to the war when their country when their country recalled them to battle uh there were uh two accounts uh i i read about uh one was of a soldier uh on the german side who would climb into a tower just beyond the range of the artillery and he would call out for uh what's the for the news from london Claiming to have been the, uh, I believe he was uh, something like the head waiter at uh, one of the uh, more elite hotels there. There you go. Another account uh, from the Christmas truce was, uh, I believe a German barber gave haircuts to some of his old clients on the English side of the lines. Which is Which is an act of, of small worlds. Although... To be honest, too, the other thing that really makes me um, think, especially in this situation, is legitimately just how disconnected the soldiers were from the reason that they're fighting. I mean, we, we you brushed briefly upon it about all the alliances that dragged these nations into it. I mean, the main battle was fought between France and Germany, even though neither of those are anywhere near Serbia. Yes, yes. The uh, the for those of you who don't know, the out the outbreak of this war was the assassination of the Archduke of Austria-Hungary, a man named Franz Ferdinand, 
by Serbian nationalists. The war escalated uh, into world into World War One when Ger- when the German nation agreed to back Austria-Hungary in whatever measures it chose to take against Serbia, and Russia uh, chose to back Serbian uh, independence and sovereignty against uh, Austria-Hungary, which brought France into the war as Russia's ally. Uh, and it just domino effect, which dr- and then Germany invading Belgium to get at uh, to get into France brought uh, the United Kingdom into the war, and the it was only a matter of time before other nations uh, that fought, such as Italy and America, were just slowly dragged into the conflict. Can we just briefly talk about the failed attempt at the assassination, like the fact that. The actual assassination plan completely went to shit within the first, like, half an hour. And it was only by a random chance that the Archduke was driven down the same street where the would-be assassin was at a cafe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, the man who shot Franz Ferdinand, he had given up on his uh, he given up on his attempt. He had decided it was a botched attempt, so he decided to stop off at the cafe. And, uh, well, who should he see just, you know casually you know driving down the alleyway behind him but the man he's here to kill and the assassin is bogdan zerzik uh yes i believe that that is the name although i do not have it in front of me uh directly at the moment yes um yeah although actually let me let me double check that yeah uh, so this, pronunciation yeah. is something that is a, a little hard when you're going into this. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. no. He was names. he was one of the conspirators. The actual assassin was Gavrilo Princip. Yes, and uh, for those of you who are wondering, the location of this attack was uh, the city of Sarajevo. Yes. I have to try, I have to try very <laughs> hard not to call it Sarajevo. Uh, I pronounce J's very hard, and it is uh, screwed up more than one foreign word. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, that'll do it. Yeah. Oh, you and your distinctive accents. All, listen, all J's are the same as, make the same sound as the word Jack. Jack Oof. be nimble, Jack be quick. <laughs> My linguistic ears. Okay. <laughs> But just uh, the fact that the the entire assassination attempt went to shit and still just happened to f- to end up working and to end up just working out and then the the issue where the alliances really get brought in was that Austria Hungary blamed the Serbian government even though it was Serbian nationals who who did it like it, it was totally a red herring in that regard. I mean, when when you guys learned about World War One, did you learn about mania? Nope. No, my my history education was uh, was not the best in school. Yeah, yeah, my my high my high school uh, neglected anything that wasn't math or hard science. So, uh, mania it's an acronym that stands for militarism, alliances, nationalism, imperialism, and assassination. You you put all of those together, and you have a faux war, because. Another thing to keep in mind is most of these European nations had overseas colonies and holdings. At this point, it was, what, primarily Africa that they're fighting over, but a lot of the eastern block of Asia as well. Yeah, so, oh, yeah you, you have those wars happening. Uh, 
yeah, just fighting over who got to take over the colonies that were established. Yes, uh, yeah, that that's uh, the uh, that southeastern Asian uh, sort of mm-hmm. colony area. That was a big part of the reason why Japan is actually involved in World War One, as they were seen <laughs> yeah. as a useful tool by Britain and France uh, to attack German over you know seize holdings in that region. The other thing that also I thought- they're like consistent argue or not arguing but battling with uh, Russia and Korea over their colonies as well as who gets to have the right over them. That the people living in the colonies will like, you know, today I don't know what citizen I am. We're just gonna <laughs> we're just gonna try to figure it out. Um, add on to that, but I hate both of you, mom and dad. If you have about how uh, yeah yeah about how friendly the relationship was. So are you guys saying that that relationship led to Korea lashing out and thus that is the reason we it that is the responsibility or that is the reason we have K-pop is what you're saying. I'm is, not, I'm not no, getting into this. I'm not specifically I, I don't, talking I, about through a long stringing of events. Like, <laughs> I don't it, it all correlates. Listen. Listen. Me and my Weirds Waldo Santa hat hybrid uh, <laughs> do not understand what you're talking about, and we refuse to acknowledge whatever logical fallacy we've just used. I, it's all of them. I'm using every single logical fallacy. Uh, what uh, one that I'm uh, specifically referencing, uh, though the name escapes me, is uh, an island off of uh, I think what is now Russia, uh, which. I know it does not mean a lot of sense since Russia has taken is like China just takes over a lot of territories. Um, But specifically, uh, you know, especially with the colonies and the and the the wars and fighting that would happen over who got to control these colonies is is they would have citizenship uh, in different areas. But if you try to go back to where you came from, depending on the time, you would not be recognized as a citizen because someone else had hold over you at that point. So let's say you're uh, from Japan and you go over to this place to be at this colony to to work in like a mine or something or farming. You try to go back to Japan well, you know, Russia has hold over this, you know, you may not technically be allowed back in because you're a Russian citizen now. And it would flip flop like that. I mean, that obviously depended um, on other things, especially if you were natively from that place, you were told you were a Japanese citizen and then you're coming in and that gets into whole other things. But that reminds me of something similar, but kind of tangential is there was a soldier in World War Two. His name was Yang Kyongjong, who was a Korean soldier who, when fighting um, the Russians, was abducted and forced to fight for the Red Army. Well, he got sent to the uh, to the Western Front there on the eastern side of Germany and got abducted and had to fight for the Germans. <laughs> this poor man. This poor man. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. I think it was the end of, like, with, like, four or five different armies by the time the war is over. Yeah, basically. <laughs> poor Oof. guy. The luckiest unlucky bastard in, in, in history. <laughs> yes. But to, to steer back to World yes. War uh, One, we did, we uh, did uh, kind of get off on a, uh, on a t- Yes, so yes. we are coming back to the Christmas truce in World War One. 
Yes. Fighting's only been going on for five months. The Pope is calling for peace. Most of the soldiers are already a little bit chummy, at least between the British and the Germans. Uh, most of the uh, rest of the lines where the French and the Belgians are stationed, they're not really so happy seeing as how it's their nation that is currently being occupied and under threat of conquest. Uh, so they don't really go for this, but for the British and German line, where those two points meet, uh, on Christmas Eve uh, 1914, the shelling stops on both sides, and uh, the British soldiers look across, and they see quite an interesting sight, uh, because the Kaiser has sent all of his soldiers... Little little Tannenbaum, little Christmas trees to remind them of home, which they have been taken along the entirety of their line and lit up. Can we just talk about so how adorable? Can we um, talk about the ridiculousness of just sending Christmas trees? Like you could send goodie packages, you could send extra snacks or rations. Now here's a tiny tree for you. Listen, uh, I mean, technically, they can use that for wood fire when they're when they're done decorating it. You know, you'd Warmth. be lucky if you could flush your teeth with that kind of tiny little tree. I am. I'm just saying, for the amount that he sent, they probably could have like made a nice fire out of it. Just put them on like logs. Like, sorry about the trench foot, but here's a tree. They did yeah. send other things. Uh, uh, yeah, they did. The, there were there are many other things sent uh, by uh, both the Kaiser to his uh, to his soldier and uh, to his soldiers and from I believe Princess Mary on the British side mm -hmm. uh, sent gifts to the British troops. Uh, uh, I forget exactly what was in them, but I do recall uh, one of the uh, one of the things I read. Uh, a recounting like in a letter from one of the English soldiers uh, speaks uh, a little bit of how he, uh, I believe he got a pipe from the British government and he's writing to his uh, wife about how in his pipe is tobacco, but it's not just any tobacco. It's German tobacco that he got on Christmas day from a German soldier he had met in the trenches. Yeah. Which I think is really great about the truce is that they actually gave each other the presents that they got from like the kaiser and the princess it's like the gift that they were giving to their soldiers for fighting in this war for them um was given to the enemy soldiers during that truce uh which was so adorable i do distinctly remember uh one of the presents being tea uh because that was just the most british thing ever uh, i don't remember which side that was from it just seemed very british Yes, I believe. Uh, I believe the the British got cigarettes and pipes and tea and, and chocolates too, and I believe the Germans uh, received uh, beer. Uh, I know they received beer. Uh, they received tobacco and um, it was something else, but I can't quite remember. I don't. I don't always. Uh, remember i don't always remember what what all the stuff that was in the gifts uh yeah specifically were. princess mary sent tobacco cigarettes and sweets to all the soldiers uh 
I do not remember what the Kaiser sent. Because this was Kaiser Wilhelm II, which I do also want to point out was a descendant of Queen Victoria. His mother was Victoria's eldest daughter. Yes. Oh my gosh, uh, right. Yes. Uh, all the, uh, fun fact with that. All the monarchs of these nations, from Austria-Hungary <laughs> to, to Russia to France to England to, to Germany, all, any any nation with a monarch in this war was a was essentially a cousin to one another. All descended from Queen Victoria. Talk about a hell of a family fight! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I mean, when when you're dealing with royalty in general, you toss a coin and. Yeah you'll probably, you know, land on them being related rather than not related, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's it's amazing, though. Uh, you pick a fight at your family reunion and 20 million people die. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to make Christmas really awkward. Also, can you imagine just the descendants going down? It's like, yeah, you remember that? You remember that point in history Ooh. where uh, family did not get along very well? Let's be honest, uh, by the end of the war, three of the uh, monarchs involved were deposed. Germany, for sure. Where German German Russia. Kaiser Wilhelm II, the Russian Tsar, and I believe the king of uh, the, the king of the Austria-Hungary Empire. Uh, he didn't so much abdicate as there was no longer Austria-Hungary. <laughs> the nation yeah. he was the emperor he was the emperor of ceased to exist. I hate when that happens, you know. <laughs> interesting yeah, yeah that the the fa the familial aspect really kind of makes it interesting and i also wonder if that's just part of it because it almost sounds like a lot of this started off as like a i don't really want to fight you but i signed this piece of paper so uh yeah well meet in the trench at five <laughs> yeah yeah the war was undertaken with a lot of uh a lot of brevity and this sort of mistaken idea that it was going to be one of these brief uh, minor conflicts, like many of the wars of the past uh, century had half century had been, which were wars of uh, essentially imperialism where uh, European troops with machine gun nests uh, fired on charging infantry of uh, indigenous peoples. Uh, it was said when the war was declared uh, five months prior that it would be over by Christmas. Yet, there on Christmas Eve, Germans are lining the trenches with uh, lit Christmas trees, singing uh, Silent Night, and the war still going on. But I think a, an important point to, to point out with that is this is the first like truly industrial war. This is the yeah. first real war that we see with introduction of aircraft, chemical warfare, the higher powered utility and rifles. I mean, before. Oh, yes. Yeah. So we're seeing all these major advancements, but at the same time, you have counter advancements, but they only go so far. And they effectively put each other at a stalemate because when you are both massively armed to the teeth, training. It matters, but it doesn't play as big of a role, especially at this point. Like later on in the war, you get so many deaths and so many people dying that you're replacing people with less training, with less experience, just because you need the bodies in the spot. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's that's a good thing to just bring up is uh, just the nature of trench warfare. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of you know conceptions about it, but basically what it went is there's a shelled out uh, desolate piece of land called no man's land, several feet of barbed wire, and then this thinly manned line on each side of just machine gun nests and snipers looking for kills. Yeah. Behind that, uh, connected by little underground trenches and small uh, access points is another series of about three or four lines containing the actual garrison, the actual uh, galleys and supplies and storehouses for everything that was needed uh, to survive. So this, you know, this is a very thinly lined, thinly manned death field that is then densely packed with people just, just behind the just out of range of the sniper. And if that doesn't sound awful of having snipers trained on your head the second you poke out and just exchanging gunfire all the time, the conditions inside the trenches were fucking awful. Pardon my French, but you had to deal with wet, damp conditions. It would freeze over. You're exposed to the elements constantly. It, it, there's so many people that the ground can't dry out and can't get rid of the moisture. So you get trench foot which is a fungal infection in your feet, um, these soldiers were dying a disease along with that because of the tri- the, the really trapped nature of it. Like, yeah. Definitely. And, oh, sorry, sorry, Gwen, was, you can go. <laughs> which was one of the reasons why this truce was so helpful uh, when they were actually able to make it because, you know, having that sniper trained on you, some of the people that went to go make these truces along the battle lines, they got killed instantly because you didn't it wasn't said that these truces were happening someone had to step out and do that and sometimes it was accepted and sometimes it wasn't but these truces were such a morale boost for these soldiers that were in these horrible conditions um and you know that for the disciplinary action because obviously like the Kaiser and the princess were not happy about this. And, and a lot of the, uh, you know, higher ups, but for the people that were on the grounds, they saw like how important this was going to be for morale. Um, so no disciplinary action was ever actually taken, even though these truces were not sanctioned. Yeah. Yeah. It was effect. It was a functionally an act of insubordination and desertion that just got swept under the rug. And, with uh, with the point on trench foot, actually, the weather uh, was a is actually credited with being a big factor in why the truce was able to take place. Because for the month of December 1914, it had rained, and it had rained, and it had rained. And in trench warfare, rain is just as much hell as bullets. And on and and just and and on you know Christmas Eve, the rain stopped, the ground froze. And it began to snow. And there, there was something uh, magical to that, to these people who had been trapped in the mud and the sludge and the death, seeing on you know this you know for them very holy holiday. It was the hell was ending. It was truly a Christmas miracle. All right, oh get out. Throw it away. <laughs> uh, I 
I'm definitely surprised that I have not seen a Lifetime uh, Christmas movie advertised uh, with this as the setup because just I if I read that in a book, I would have been like, ah, the the symbolism, the imagery, not. Yeah, I see this actually happening in in real life. Now, if you're going to make it a Hallmark movie, you have to like really up it a notch to where it's like. A British soldier during the truce meets a German nurse who is working the front lines. No, 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 no. Let's make this shit gay. Let's not neglect people. Let's do a a British soldier. uh, And a German soldier. Hello, Hans. I really like your accent. (laughs) I'm I'm just saying, I know we got to add the love story for Hallmark, but like you you couldn't think of a, a better thing. So I'm definitely sure that that um that kind of sense of relief for that changing of the weather really shifted uh people's attitudes um, well and then the this the christmas caroling the singing like i could imagine how magical that must actually be and it's i i try to think about it from like the humanist perspective like how humanizing is that to hear the other side singing and celebrating this holiday that you both have in common you are after all kin yeah, uh, fun fun note on that. Um, one of the uh, the the British, uh, I believe it was a battalion, uh, that was placed opposite uh, this one regiment that from the Germans that was singing uh, "Silent Night." Knock. They they actually took it uh, according to the commander's report. They took it as a challenge to outmarry uh, the Germans and prove <laughs> oh, that yes. the British oh, yes. had a better fest had more festive hearts and were more devoted. I let, to to this holiday they, they were not going to lose to the germans and so the conflict the competition shifted from killing to merrymaking as uh, i believe the british countered uh silent night with first noel so can we just make that the new toxic masculinity get rid of this <laughs> bullshit like dick sizing contest no out marry each other like I want to see the obnoxious Christmas designs plastered all over the block. Like two neighbors just going at it with the de- decorations yeah. and everything. Yeah. I mean, I actually think there are movies on that. But uh, I know another one of the activities after the caroling was the soccer matches. Yeah. Or uh, football matches for, you know, non-American people. Football. Uh, and I, I do find it interesting that on these later accounts, uh, each side says that they won yep. the soccer matches because that's a point of pride. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, but it's, it's thought that the Germans, I think, typically yes. won their games. So, yeah. So there's a fun fact about that. There are five uh, soccer matches that occurred uh, between the Germans and the British troops of like like that are like claimed by like the different battalions mm-hmm. of those five uh which i may be wrong it might be four but of the of those matches the only one that is disputed by all the english speaking sources that we used uh to research this uh topic for you guys the only one that's disputed is the one the germans won oh my god that's hilarious the the british army refuses to acknowledge to this day that a german battalion beat the scottish highlanders three to two not the scotsman (laughs) um yet and this is despite the fact that a uh i want to say sergeant uh 
from the uh, from the regiment that lost. Uh, I think about forty or fifty years later, retold the story of how it happened. He was, you know, in in like nineteen sixty, he he had lived. He was one of the few people from the Christmas truce to survive, and he. 50 years later, was still insisting, no, 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 they, they won three to two in the soccer match. And the British government's like, no. <laughs> I can't You're imagine. Not the, admitting that. I can't imagine the British like, government hiding something in their past. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> They're the British. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Me, meanwhile, it's like a, it's a point of pride <laughs> for the German battalion. The rest of the world would like to know your location. <laughs> No, that's that's see, we we joke about it being a Christmas miracle, but you really have to imagine like what it was like for those soldiers. You're in the trench, you're in the shit. Like, like Colum said, the weather was awful. It was raining. It was cold. It was miserable. You're under the threat of dying at any point, and just for this moment of peace and clarity, it's switched. The snowfall probably helped, and then the caroling, like. I'm just imagining you're further down the line and you hear this coming as it's coming down. Yep. And some places, you know, there was, you know, you could hear the gunfire in the distance too and you were uneasy, but you still persisted. And that, the willingness to take that risk. And, uh, and then the I'm, I'm reminded of, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm reminded of one of the stories of uh, a truce had actually uh, been brokered a little bit by the, uh, uh, one of the commanding officers of the British, one of the commanding officers of the Germans had agreed that their lines would stop fighting and they came out to meet. Yeah. And someone on the British side, uh, their rifle uh, misfired. And in response, uh, the German lines, instead of firing on the point which uh, the point where the gun came from, fired on the nearest targets they could see. And they killed the officer, both of the officer's brothers Ooh. who had gone out with him to... Uh, make this truce and make merry and it definitely the truce held there despite all that, the truce held but there was definitely a uh there was it was definitely not uh it was more of a standstill than it was a uh peace you know merriment but the truce held it was still that powerful the unwillingness to you know just kill each other on christmas I also think it's very valuable to point out the fact that the United States had yet to join in and had yet to just take things to that next level. Yes, uh, this is this war has this war does not uh, have United States backing for the uh, British and French side until 1917. Yeah, we we get into the war pretty late, and this is, yes. this is really uh, early on. Again, through a conspiracy letter and the the Mexico papers, <laughs> the Zimmerman letter. Did Which I... everyone knew was never going to happen. Mexico was uh, was still probably hadn't truly recovered from uh, the last war with America uh, that it had had. And it was probably not really looking to well, take so its guns into Texas. Not only just that, the war with America, which was what, 1840s, 1830s? Yep. And then immediately after that, they had to deal with Napoleon and Maximilian's bullshit. Yep. <laughs> the Battle of Puebla. Like, they were yep. just starting to get their feet under them and, like, yep. starting to really get established. I really... Yeah, they, there, there was absolutely no... They were not in a position to have the imperial desire of retake California and Texas and uh, all the rest of that. I, 
completely unfounded, but I thought it was an interesting perspective that perhaps the Zimmerman letter was faked and was forged by the uh, British and French. Uh, that's that's interesting. I don't I don't believe it was forged. I do believe the letter uh, was an, I believe it was sent there as an intentional attempt to provoke America into fighting Mexico as opposed to joining uh, France uh, and Britain in Europe. Yeah. Because at, at that point, it was pretty clear that the U.S. was arming for war, and it was pretty obvious whose side they were going to be on. <laughs> so it, but from the German perspective, better that America opens a new theater of war in North America than reinforces the existing one on the home front. But, but instead, they're like, okay, well... To Europe we go. <laughs> yep. Oh. Incredibly crazy. Uh, though I do like that the the soccer matches have persisted uh, when commemorating the Christmas truce, since it is still, you know, referenced and and talked about and has been memorialized. The um, is it the matches between. I believe it's British and German forces. Uh, like yes. their their current armies will have uh, a soccer match. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. M- much like how in America, uh, the different branches of the military have their own football team. Uh, yeah, in, football. In Europe, a lot of different branches of the military have their own soccer or you know, football team. Uh, and so the army teams for both uh, Germany and England play uh, commemorate played a commemorative match uh, for the hundredth anniversary of the truce. Yeah, uh, which was a big deal. I believe it was also accompanied by a uh, memorial that was unveiled to the truce uh, by Prince William. Yeah, yeah, good old Prince yeah. Willie. Uh, yeah, nothing, nothing bad has ever been said about him. <laughs> Are not dealing with modern politics. Yeah, like uh, you got to be more uh, more worried about some of the other people in the family rather than Prince William. Right? Yeah, I know Meghan Markle. Yeah, whoa, 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 whoa. let's let, no, let's no, not go there, okay? <laughs> yeah, like uh, our, our, we don't even know if Archie's a part of the royal family. You know, if you oh, see American I, peasant. I was referencing Prince Philip and uh, and Prince Charles, but okay. So you even oh, missed yeah. out on the on the single most problematic royal, Prince Andrew. It, it it's quite clear and I, well established that Prince Andrew liked. I, I, I thought I thought I thought we were at the point where we stopped acknowledging his existence. I was about to say, I honestly forget about Prince Andrew sometimes. But see, my my issue with Prince Andrew is Prince Andrew um, liked liked younger women. He liked real young women. Right. Yes, so- no, no, no. He's totally problematic. <laughs> I think about the royal family. I'm thinking about the ones that are like still in the news. I just, I, I, I feel obligated to point that out. You can't let that stuff slide. All right, but- all right. Uh, so anyway, back to Prince William, uh, the commemoration. Uh, I think it's a good. I think it's a good segue to just talk about a little bit about um, the legacy of this truce, a little bit of why it's still important to talk about today. Um, uh, and since the truce began with singing, I think it would be a. I think it's a fair fit uh, that we talk a little bit about how about how it's been preserved in uh, 
in music a little bit. A number of songs throughout the uh, throughout the past century plus uh, have been written about this truce uh, by varying generations. Uh, my personal favorite, and no, I do not get money from them, is the Royal Guardsman's uh, Sno uh, uh, Snoopy's Christmas from uh, the 1960s, where even Sno even Snoopy in his sock with camel fighting the Red mm -hmm. Baron both agree to uh, to a Christmas truce. See, I I'm a huge Beatles fan, so I'm more inclined to Paul McCartney's P "The Pipes of Peace." So, like, I don't know. Your Royal Guardsmen, do they compare to one of the best-selling musicians in all of human history? Well, <laughs> it is a song about the Peanuts comics, uh, one of the best-selling comics in all history. So, Ooh. we got double dipping here. And then, of course, uh, the old metal uh, Sabaton's about to release a new one talking about the Christmas truce yes. uh, later next year, right? Yes, yes. Uh, ne uh, next year, I believe it's set for uh, February or March is the official release date for uh, for the album. Uh, again, we are not paid by these people. Uh, it is The album is The War to End All Wars, uh, and the song is aptly titled Christmas Truce. No, but if Sabaton wants to send tickets our way, I would gladly go to another one of their shows. <laughs> yes um if you notice any product placement this is just a desperate call for us to be sponsored <laughs> i have absolutely no idea what you're talking about i am out but hold on wait okay i, I gotta never do anything. <laughs> how many more beverages can i drink one yes. of them has to like us yeah um all jokes aside like there's a lot of music a lot of artistic renderings yeah. There's other um, other medias mediums that were talked about as well. These are just songs. There's also what poems that have been written. Um, yes. So I I believe one of the main people that wrote the poems, uh, Robert Graves, like embellished his poetry uh, in his recounts. <laughs> wait, 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 wait! No, 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 no! No war tales have ever been embellished, Gwendolyn. <laughs> It, it has been romanticized, but that's, I think, part of the beauty of this truth is <laughs> it's, it resonates with people and it's something it's something to believe in. It's uh, it's a story worth telling. And for the most part, it's a true one, even with the embellishments, Yes. Yeah. even with, you know, the lenses of history changing. It's it's still being retold and retold over a century later, and it's. That's something that's important because what else is? Yeah, I mean, and it's it's generally hard to not want to romanticize at least something, you know, good when this war was so devastating. Uh, though we we tend to focus a lot on World War Two when we talk about devastating wars because of everything that happened, but World War One was still like it wrecked people. It was yeah. known as the Great and War for a reason. It yeah. was the greatest war fought up until yeah. that point. Yeah you, yeah, you don't earn the moniker War to End All Wars without doing something horribly, <laughs> horribly wrong. Yes. I mean, but it, like, it, it took out, like, generations. And then going into World War II, that also just taking out entire generations of, of yeah. young men and young And people. to be honest, World War One was a catalyst for World War Two because the um, – well, it was the Treaty of Paris initially that ended it, correct? 
Um, but the treaty oh, it was Versailles. That, it was a Versailles. treaty of Versailles, Versailles. Uh, which is yeah. Uh, but the, the Treaty of Versailles punished the Germans to such a high extent that it put them in e- economic turmoil um, to the point where yeah. they had to pay more than they were generating yeah. in revenue as a country. Yeah. yeah. Fun, fun <laughs> fact for those of you uh, Americans here. So you you would know from your basic history class that after World War One, there was a thing called the Roaring Twenties where everyone was a millionaire. No. And then this thing called the Great Depression in the 1930s where everyone was broke. Germany had no Roaring Twenties. From 1918 to World War II, it was just poverty. Uh, I So, to, not can, that... I, insert caveat. Go, go, go. I, I, I'm not trying to defend any of the actions or anything, blanket but... Statement. Yeah, blanket statement. Um, but Germany really, they picked up their economy in the mid to late 30s. So, like, they they almost went a reverse trajectory. Of course, the massive economic impacts worldwide really had an effect, but towards the later half of the 30s, they were employing more people, they were generating more. Granted, that, that was due to a buildup in militarism and nationalism, so, you know, obviously there's really strong, terrible root causes, but... While, while the U.S. was suffering, Germany prospered. Their their Reichmark was worth so much more. And, yeah, it, it was the econo- economic turmoil and then everything as, else. As opposed, as opposed to uh, in the 20s when the Reichmark was uh, more useful as wallpaper than it was as currency. And also the fact that um, France really trying to stick it to Germany for causing the war, even though, of course, everyone was dragged in due to alliances – Yep. Um, they punished Germany by making them pay reparations. They took a large chunk of the Rhineland, yep. which is uh, yeah, really... Was... Yeah, they shut down the Ruhr Valley, wasn't it? Which was the Germany's industrial center. But they also took a huge part of the land because it was rich in natural resources. So they, they, they did a huge land grab, made Germany drop all of their overseas land holdings. Like... It, it was a punishment to end all punishments, and instead it built this resentment, it built this hatred, and Germany had this, like, lost empire ideal built into them of, like, look at what we lost, look at what we used to have, and that built a lot of nationalism, tying it all in together and expansion. Yep. And Not just speaking... that. Oh, oh, please go. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you go, Gwen, go. Not only that, but when you are in, you know, economic instability and you're kind of, you know, in this horrible place, really hitting rock bottom, you want someone to blame, you want something to blame. um, And it may not always, uh, you know, being the, the past actions and obviously, you know, you have France and other things, but this is also what really push forward the anti-Semitism is because you want, you know, uh, you kind of want a patsy for your anger. So that was another, yeah, you want a scapegoat. Exactly. That's the word. Um, And so that also really helped to fuel that because people are much more likely (laughs) to believe in the, in these racist um, ideas and stereotypes and blaming when they're you know when they're in hardship um and you know they they just need a place to put their anger because they know that it's it's there's not a ton that they can do to get out of that situation themselves and just 
to speaking of World War II uh, and uh, the consequences of World War One in relation to uh, the Christmas truce, um, there is a there is a quote uh, attributed to uh, a uh, a German uh, courier who survived uh, the Christmas truce uh, all the way through the end of the war. Uh, little known mm. figure, uh, one yeah. Corporal Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Uh, when he learned that the truce was happening on the part of the line his garrison was stationed at, uh, he is uh, reported to have exclaimed in disgust, where is your German pride? Oof. Uh, in response to uh, a truce that lasted from a single day to almost a week. Yes, because you had till, uh, till Boxing Day in some places. Uh, yeah, you had till Boxing Day... day. Uh, yeah, till Boxing Day. Uh, some places didn't uh, stop until uh, New Year's, uh, at which point uh, command just ordered bombardment on anyone who was not in the trenches. Yeah, but I mean, this this Christmas truce, uh, I believe it for in most places it did not like this wasn't like an annual thing. This was like no. a singular this... uh, event because of all the other things that happened in World War world war one after this uh which is again i think it's why it's it's remembered so well yes uh, uh overtures uh some some people did attempt to make overtures in 1915 but at that point command was ready for it and waiting and uh there were much fewer attempts live and let live had kind of gone by the wayside by the next year yeah. as chemical warfare had been introduced and uh the casualties had begun to climb into the several million Jeez, yeah. They they really skyrocketed after that. Yeah. Uh, one one little cl- cliff note I want to put here is you look at the pictures and the videos of France to this day of where the trenches were, and you could see the scarring on the landscape. A hundred years have passed, and the the marks of this war are still being felt and still shown on the landscapes. Just kind of a a dark little point, but like this, this feels like such a long time ago, but it really wasn't. How how do you do Willie McBride? (laughs) But as a perfect other segue, Christmas, we we focus a lot on the Christmas truce. There have been a lot of other really prominent um, events that have taken place on Christmas. I mean, a lot connected to war too, surprisingly. (laughs) I mean, as an American, you know, <laughs> we grow up saluting the the image of George Washington guiding his troops across the Delaware River on Christmas Day. Or <laughs> it is, uh, I, I, yeah, midnight on Christmas. Uh, Christmas, mi- Christmas on midnight, he crosses the Delaware and yeah. uh, attacks a bunch of German uh, hussars, uh, hussars, <laughs> I believe. Anyway, he attacks this German regiment under the British command and takes them captive. <laughs> so, once again, Germans, war, Christmas. <laughs> How are we doing? Not going well. But this was like a really stark um, turning point in the war. This was when the tides really started shifting and changing because Washington had become this huge figure. Um, in the early parts, pre-revolution, they they were trying to lobby Washington to join them and to command their army because he was a revered British soldier back in his youth. And to the point where he's like, I, I don't, I don't want to like, I don't know about that. 
to leading the troops and like rallying them against the British war machine. Like at this point, I think it's really important to emphasize the British military was at their might. There was no Navy greater than the British Navy. Yeah, there was, there was uh, the, at, uh, at the time of, of the American revolution, uh, the British army uh, effectively hadn't lost a war uh, since taking on its form at that time. And it was, it was considered the best army in the world. And what, one of the things that makes uh, crossing of the Delaware, that victory, all the more significant is not just being on Christmas, not just this, you know, semi mythical figure in even his own time. That is George Washington. But the fact that in 1776, that entire year was marked by British victory after British victory after British victory in the field. The colonial and continental armies spent their time running from British soldiers. And this impossible midnight crossing of a frozen river, this was, this was the rallying cry uh, that, turned it, that turned it all around for the next year. This was that really that first wave of American pride of like, we stand up to this bully. We stand up against this oppressive force and we really like, we truly believe in this cause and we're willing to do this fool's errand. And it's kind of cool because that point becomes the rallying point and becomes the turning point. And then you start noticing smaller skirmish victories and that the adaptation and adoption of skirmish warfare yeah. i mean this is why you'll see a painting of this you know dramatized in most you know uh buildings and historical references because god bless america it's uh yeah it was it was the, <laughs> don't, don't marca this right now <laughs> it was it was the first uh it, it was the first impossible victory uh that america had as a nation and you get you, you hear a lot more, you know, for callbacks to the Alamo, uh, but you know, th this was this was the uh, this was the first really lightning strike uh, focal point that, well, I'm going to say it uh, lit the torch of liberty because screw the British Empire. I'm sorry. Well, and speaking of impossible victories, <laughs> not not more than a couple of years later. The good old British came back. They did not take it lightly that the pesky Americans won their freedom. And now that they were done dealing with Napoleon's BS and his Bonaparte, that they can truly dedicate themselves to the American war effort. And the War of 1812 broke out. And oh, yes. on Christmas in 1814, the, the treaty uh, to end the war happened. And um, that was what, in Belgium? Uh, yeah, that was in, it was in uh, it was named after Ghent, Belgium, because that was the that was the neutral site on which the talks were held, which uh, I always do find a little bit interesting because this neutral site is off the coast of England. To be fair, they signed the other one in Paris. So, like, yeah, maybe maybe the American delegation were like. OMG, well, European vacay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, well, the Americans, the, the Americans did like the French, uh, especially at this time, as the French oh, were yes. our first and oftentimes only ally. Uh, fun fact, out. though, France was not the first country to recognize the United States. We have an ally earlier than France. 
you going to leave us in suspense? Or are you? Gonna I, I, I was wondering if there are any guesses, but it was actually Morocco. That Morocco. would not have been one of my guesses. They are the United States' oldest ally and the first country to officially recognize us. And, you know, real recognize real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then uh, then we go to Tunisia and we get all those songs about the coast of Barbary from the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> Just like. But the other thing that I find really interesting about the Treaty of Ghent is, one, it was signed on Christmas. But then, two, the greatest U.S. victory of the entire war <laughs> yeah, happened after it was over. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, future President Andrew Jackson, old hickory. This this document can't stop me because I can't read. <laughs> Just takes the uh, takes out the British in the Battle of New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, though, in their defense, travel was a lot slower and it took a lot of time, which is also why the treaty wasn't ratified until 1815. Yes, it, it, it yeah, took yeah, several months. It, it took several months just to get a copy back to the United States of America, so that our government could choose to acknowledge it. Huh. Uh, War over. Let's go home. Yep. Uh, yeah. A fun, a fun note about vic about military victories uh, and stands for the United States uh, that happened after peace technically occurred in the Revolutionary War. Uh, the the siege of the fortress that inspired the Star Spangled Banner, the national anthem of the United States, technically occurred after the fighting had been called to cease. <laughs> Just no one told the uh, no one told the no one managed to get the message to the uh, particular fleet that was uh, bombarding this one fortress. Yeah, they got to get faster birds. I'm just saying. Pigeons. Well, he, you want to talk about fast. Then let's skip ahead to the USSR. Unfortunately, well, the Beatles will not be returning to the USSR because Christmas Day, Gorbachev resigned. December twenty yep. sixth, USSR fell. Nineteen ninety one. Yep. And a fun thing for you inter internet denizens: the lifespan of uh, the USSR was 1922 to 1991, a uh, rather, uh, shall we say, cursed number on the internet these days. How so? 1991? 91 minus 22. How long did the USSR last? Don't make me say it on the internet. Don't make me say it. Don't make me say it. I am not very good at math because it is definitely oh God, taking me a minute. Oh, no. Oh, no. 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 Like you're just like stalling math. You're like, okay, 19 minus 19. No. That cancels out. Anyway. Um, oh, it's, it's a funny number. It's the, the funny dissolves, number. The USSR dissolves and... Um, Boris Yeltsin uh, takes over under the newly reformed nation of Russia. I so it, it does that mean the U.S. won the the Cold War and the space race and everything? Speaking of the space race, <laughs> uh, oh, yes. segway human uh, segway. human travel. I'm not dealing with you anymore. <laughs> uh, an act of uh, human triumph uh, did occur uh, with the Apollo 8 mission on uh, Christmas Eve. Uh, the Apollo 8 mission was the first time 
a human being had left the orbit of Earth and began to orbit the moon. Uh, it was the first time we saw the dark side of the moon, and it's the first time we hey, encapsulated the globe. I have that album over there, <laughs> the dark side of the moon. <laughs> uh, yep, yeah, so the globe. And it's uh, on Christmas Eve, Apollo 8 broadcast uh, what it saw back to Earth in one of the most watched broadcasts uh, in history. It's really interesting just how captivating the space race was. Like, uh, I, a lot of children in that era, in the 60s, grew up admiring NASA because NASA really showed as the cutting-edge line of technology. Well, not only that, but the space race also uh, propped up uh, education and furthering education. So <laughs> the space race in the Cold War is the reason why so many people now can go to college and getting those grants and scholarships. Never mind how that got fucked up, you know, er, you know earlier in the uh, this century, but... Uh, yeah, that that was one of the reasons why we really like furthered like STEM and you know college graduates from all you know economic backgrounds because Russia was beating us <laughs> with, with with their education system and they're like shit. Well, if if we're gonna be in space first and we're gonna do this, we need to really you know back up uh, our citizens and and their education and that's. That's why we have this push now. One of the. Oh, sorry. Oh no, go on. Uh, I was gonna say a fun, a fun fact with this, uh, with this push, and like your reference to uh, NASA, uh, you know, kind of going by the wayside a little bit. The reason Apollo Eight orbited the moon is because uh, the original mission was supposed to be a launch test for the lunar module, of just can we get this object into space and have it orbit Earth and come back down. Lunar module was broken. It was, uh, it was, it had uh, encountered some design flaws and some manufacturing delays. And so, rather than scrap the mission or change the launch date, they just said, "Well, we've got this pod. Let's throw it at the moon." And so, Apollo Eight went to the moon when it was never meant to. And one of the things that um, I think is really, really important to point out is one of the reasons the United States' space race was so successful is thanks to Katherine Johnson, who, if you're not aware, is one of the most badass women in all of history because she is the reason that module managed to make it to the moon and the reason why we were able to put people in space and on the moon because she would do the calculations for all of their launches. They had massive computers that would crunch all these numbers and this badass woman went through by hand and fact-checked the computers to make sure that their calculations were on point. Like no, I mean NASA had like a whole section of you know women um, of of varying races to do these calculations, and that is not pointed at uh, enough. And they were definitely more trusted. Uh, then the computers and even when you know there was this push to uh, lay them off you know they they started getting training on the computers so that you can go and reference and, and fact check them because they knew those calculations so well and if she was not badass enough 
She lived to be 101 years old. Almost 102. Born August 26th, 1918. Died February 24th, 2020. And that is our tie back to the uh, to World War One, as, uh, <laughs> as uh, she was born in the last year of the war. So there you go, uh, folks. Uh, yeah, another we, name you might recognize. Another name you might recognize uh, um, is uh, a, a wonderful man uh, portrayed by Tom Hanks. Uh, Jim Lovell was on the Apollo Eight mission. It was uh, it was his uh, prior flight to the fateful Apollo Thirteen mission. Uh, unfortunately, he does never set foot on the moon. That was to be his Apollo 13 journey. But uh, he made it there once, and it's uh, it's probably a good good chunk of the reason why he knew exactly what to do and how to get back. Very helpful. Yeah, I, I hear going to space helps with that. <laughs> the, the other thing that I think I, I wanted to brush up upon briefly is the space race also led to some really interesting side inventions because going to space provides a whole slew of new challenges. Two of the biggest ones that I really want to point out are the ballpoint pen. Because when you're in space, how do you write? Oh my gosh. Well, I hear the Russians brought a pencil. And you want to know the issue with (laughs) pencils? Pencils break, and you get chunks of graphite floating around in the air and in your system. Yes, they do. So the U.S. developed the ballpoint pen, which even in zero gravity would still flow because, well, pens don't work without gravity or without, like, flowing ink. So that's where the ballpoint pen actually originates. And then my personal favorite is the slinky. <laughs> of course, you would bring that up. <laughs> you, j- j- Justin, You're like revolutionary get back. inventions, the slinky. J- yes. Justin, please, please get back in your time capsule to 1971 <laughs> and stay there this time. <laughs> You're not supposed to really out me as a time traveler now. It's okay. Pe- pe- people will know. They'll be able to tell. <laughs> Especially with your obsession with the beans. Uh, yeah. To get back on the topic of Christmas events and not just space. Because yes. that could be that could be a whole that's other a, thing. That's a whole. Um, is we were talking about, you know, um, conquering and war being related to Christmas. And that we, we actually have, I believe, two that we looked up for this. Uh, coronations that happened on christmas uh specifically the uh charlemagne which yep. i did not know was in an actual name i just knew it from a cartoon which is saying a lot about me right now <laughs> so fun yeah, fact about sure. charlemagne about six or what is it um Oh, God, what's the statistic? Most of uh, Europe is related to him, though. Uh, I believe at this point, I believe at this point, uh, they did the math and they said, uh, if you're of European descent, like full-blooded European descent, uh, you are descended from Charlemagne. Yeah. Um, cool, I get multiple rows in my lineage. Yeah. Um, ev- everyone well, can trace their lineage. Though. Everyone can trace their lineage to Charlemagne if you're European. All roads lead back to Charlemagne. Yeah, it's uh, it's more of a time thing than it is, you know, my father's father's father. I mean, same to be said you know with Genghis sense. Khan. 
Yeah. You know, he he was crowned in in eighteen hundred. I'm sure if you go far back, you you can yeah. find things. So yeah, uh, fun fact about the name: eight hundred, not eighteen hundred. Yeah, yeah. so fun, yeah, uh, eight hundred was the year that this coronation occurred. And just a little yes. fun fact because uh, Gwendolyn here uh, didn't know his name existed uh, outside of the TV box. Uh, prior to that, <laughs> uh, Funny picture moving box. Char- Charlemagne is uh, is not a given name. It's it's more of a title, meaning Charles the Great. Yeah. Yes. Um, which yes, is, which is sure. why you don't. Which is why you don't really see a Charlemagne the Second or anything like that, because only one may be great. Well, he was called the Father of Europe, so it's really hard to kind of live up to that. Yeah. I I mean, also you could tell that he was trying to set himself up for success, adopting the Roman Empire moniker and with it really taking a lot of homage to Rome and. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't the capital of the Holy Roman Empire, I know it was in Istanbul for a while, but wasn't there a second capital? Uh, so, uh, so, uh, the claims to be the next Rome, uh, started obviously with Rome, then the second one was Constantinople, which, uh, seat, which kind of lost its claim following the Ottoman conquest. Uh, the third claim to be the second Rome was the Holy Roman Empire, and then the fourth claim was Moscow, as Mos as Russia was uh, with the fall of Constantinople was the most powerful Orthodox Church. Ah, um, yeah, and uh, being second Rome, that's actually a big reason as to why the uh, Pope, a man by the name of Leo the Third, gave Charlemagne the crown of Emperor of the Romans. Uh, at that time, the most powerful person in europe was the uh empress of byzantium and that's an orthodoxy state and so by doing this the pope was hoping to get a catholic on equal footing with an emperor not just kings but emperors and uh it was a it was a power play for him yeah didn't the uh the the populace of this empire that he built shift to catholicism uh yes uh he was known for uh during his time uh conquering it he was known for a bit of a convert or die mentality uh forced baptisms uh were a thing for charlemagne uh he does calm down a little bit after being crowned emperor of the romans uh get into some laws and uh, education reforms as he's basically at that point trying to figure out how to preserve his empire among his children. He doesn't. That's... But hey, the man conquered France, Germany, Italy, and all the countries in between. Well, speaking of conquerors and conquering, that leads us into our second big coronation. Uh, This little guy by the name of of what is that william william the the conqueror do not do scottish i freaking will kill you he's not william wallace william the conqueror listen i was i was so ready for you to be like uh bill yeah do you know this man bill bill the conqueror like his full name is william i was so ready for you to go there him and i are buddies (laughs) most people knew him as bootstrap or bootstrap bill Oh my gosh, you that's know, what it's from, from the Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes. You guys forget that I, I am a time traveler, so me and Bill, so, you know, we hang out. So, we hang with the Normans. I have a fun story about this man. So this is a fun personal story we, that I, that I wanted to tell. You right. know him, bro? 
So, so no, I'm not that old. Shut up. So <laughs> he, William the Conqueror, he's crowned on Christmas in Westminster Abbey in the year 1066 after earning his name by conquering England. Mm-hmm. He's from Normandy, which is not England. That is right. Uh, so I was, uh, I was in London once upon a time, and I did a little tour of London. And my very British, uh, like, ex-high school history teacher tour guide, uh, he would speak of, you know, these people, you speak of these people, be they Roman emperors, be they William the Conqueror, which was mentioned by name, as uh, he-, he spoke of them as, uh, as English, as from London. Uh, it was, it was, uh, there were lots of fun things like our emperor Tiberius and, you know, our king will, and you know, and you know, our boy William the Conqueror. It's like, it's like, no, no, William the Conqueror isn't called William the Conqueror because he is an Englishman who conquers other places. He's William the Conqueror because he's a Frenchman that conquers England. I, that's my favorite thing too, especially with the English French resentment that eventually boiled up. It's like, oh my gosh, but, yes. but you descend from the French. Yep. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Half William your language is ours. Yeah. William the Conqueror yeah, is responsible for language. Yeah. One third of all English words are French because this man, because this man. I, I wouldn't say they're French. They're French derived. Like, I just, I want to make that small distinction. Oh, pardon me, mademoiselle. Oh. I do not understand. Pardon me, perdonami. Don't, don't mess with me, guys. You're you're gonna hurt my my poor friend. <laughs> I am a monolingual man. I took I four semesters of French. I have one like, semester in of college here. Or... I, will, I will destroy you. I, I, I took four semesters of French in college, and I took eight and a half years of Spanish. Okay, well, which one is better, question mark, you know? So Spanish is a little bit easier and a little bit more straightforward, and it's definitely easier to grasp. French is kind of fun because then you get to mess around with the accent and trying to pronounce the words a little more accurate. And no, of course, you I'm speak doing a language. You should yeah. you should try to do the pronunciation right because that's that's normally more important than the grammar. But that's also the best way to uh, <laughs> to bug people who speak the language natively. Is like you just butcher it horrifically, and they're like, "Stop, please! I will that, speak English." I, I yes. want I want someone to say Bordeaux the way it's spelled. Bordeaux. No, <laughs> that's just that's the not way how languages spelled. work. All right, we all know English is like the greatest, uh, most you know. Uh, what, what's the word where like it sounds like it's written? Uh, phonetic, right? Yeah, it's the most. It's the most phonetic language of them all. There's absolutely no times when letters shift sounds randomly. So that's because of the French. That's because of our boy Bill. He's the reason we have silent letters. <laughs> Night? Come on. Night? There are silent Me? letters in other languages. Yeah, like bologna? Yeah. Uh, lasagna? To, to, to be fair. To be fair. To be fair. Gaelic uh, and all its forms in Scotland and Ireland and all the rest of that place. And also just the Welsh. Lots of silent letters. Let, let's Okay, okay. We're not going to get into Welsh, okay? I've been <laughs> to the longest place name in the world. 
Weird. I have been to the city where they have to add four extra signs to add the extra 35 characters of this town's name. It doesn't exist. It can't hurt you. <laughs> it does. And I've seen it. I've been there. You're like, I've been hurt, okay? I've seen things. I, I was traumatized. But um, I think right there is probably a good point to wrap this all up and just yeah. say, like, I think that's good for our first little foray into this. It, it got off the rails a little bit, but... <laughs> a, a little tangential, yeah. but we, we still brought it, was, it back. Like, it was, Christmas it, is I, a, a very historic I, I, day. Yep, I uh, yeah, I think we all Not worked uh, worked together well, and we got uh, we got what we wanted to done. And if you enjoyed uh, listening to us and watching us, and want to see more of our shenanigans, well, uh, we are on we're on uh, we're on broadcast twice a month. Yeah, so um, kind of some housekeeping. That's what we're going to try and aim for moving forward. Is we're going to try and do um, bi-weekly. So we're going to do every other week one episode. If at some point it gets to where we're doing multiple episodes, we'll try and push like maybe one a week out down the line. But right now it's every other week. And if you have any comments or suggestions for future ideas, drop them in the comments below. This will be uploaded to YouTube. It'll be on um, your streaming platforms for podcasts. We'll have uh, social media set up at Historical Humans. So be sure to give us a follow and to stay tuned for the next episodes because this is... This is going to be an adventure. It's going to be a wild ride. There's a lot that can be talked about. As you can see, we we jumped around from the Battle of Hastings all the way to uh, modern day in uh, Soviet Russia. But uh, if you guys liked what you saw, be sure to leave comments, drop a like, subscribe, do what you want to do, and we'll catch you all in the next, uh, the next episode. Yep. See you then. <laughs>